Good morning to everybody. Our kids are dismissing here and they're heading out. So I'm very excited uh, to be with you all this morning uh, to dive into God's Word um, and to see the truths um, recorded in here by James himself. And before proceeding any further, let's, let's go to God in prayer this morning um, and uh, continue from there. So if you would, let, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time and this opportunity um, to dive into your holy inspired scriptures. And Father, I am confident uh, that the author of these words, your Holy Spirit, is alive and is well in us this morning, and, and he will speak to our hearts from your word. Father, I pray that we all have a spirit within us um, that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and grace in our hearts uh, to obey your word and not just simply hear it. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work in me and that I would begin to speak to the truth in this passage never deviating from it, but speaking to what James has for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, when you leave today, and you go out, and you go spend 40 minutes waiting at Walmart to pick up your groceries, that's terrible. Or you go to lunch, you go to dinner, um, you go to a small group, something of that effect. Um, And if somebody should say to you today, hey, why? What, what did you learn in church? Did you learn anything? And if they say that, my hope is you can tell them this, that if we have a big idea that James is communicating today, it would be this, that favoritism ends when we recognize our own sin and turn to the gospel. So what James is telling us again, this big idea that we want to unpack here, is that favoritism ends when we as people recognize our own sin and we turn to the gospel. There's a Christian artist that I really enjoy, and some of y'all may listen to him quite a bit. His name is Zach Williams. Um, And on his new album, he has a song on that. It's called Less Like Me. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to um, take a look at that song. But I want to read a piece of that uh, song because of how it applies to what we'll get to today. But the the chorus says, a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith. A little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus. And he says a little less like me. I think it should say a whole lot less like me. But he goes on, he says, Oh, I want to feed the beggar on the street. Love to be your hands and free. Freely give what I receive. Lord, help me be. I want a friendship first above all else. Love my neighbor as myself. And the moments no one sees, Lord, help me be a little more like Jesus. And I think if we can uh, talk about this idea of favoritism, we can look back on a song like this and recognize that when we act as Christ does, when we follow him, when we model him, when we recognize our own sin, we quickly recognize that favoritism has no place in the gospel. Uh, but, But to get there, I think we have to be able to recognize our own sin and exactly the depths of our own sin. We have, we kind of have a culture where we kind of like to say things like, oh, well, you're a good person. You're such a you're such a good guy. I mean, that's just a good old boy. I mean, you know, so good. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but do we actually understand the depths of our own sin? And I want to unpack that here 
uh, to some extent, not in full, of course, but, but in Scripture. Because, uh, so for example, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 and 23 to 24. Listen to Paul. Paul tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So just a small snippet of what Paul is talking about here in Romans shows us that if we don't really analyze our sin and realize that there is absolutely nothing inherently good about us, if we don't get to the core of that and realize that we can't do good outside of Christ, that there is nothing inside of us that desires the goodness of God if not for Christ, we have to first recognize the depths of that corruption within us. There's a term within the theological realm, if you will, and I really like it, and I think it unpacks this a little bit, but the idea, um, this passage you read, it speaks to this truth of radical corruption, uh, ironically, the word radical has its roots in the Latin uh, for the word root, which is radix, which, which translates the core. So this idea of radical corruption has to do with something that permeates the entire core of something, the entire core of one's being. It's not something uh, superficial. It's not lying on the surface. And what Scripture shows us is that the effects of the fall, the effects of Adam and Eve penetrate everything about us down to the very core of our being. You see, even the English word core comes from the Latin root core, oddly enough, which means heart. That is, our sin is something that comes from the very hearts of us. In biblical terms, that means it's from the very core of our existence that we sin and fall short of who God is. Uh, and so when we reflect on that, if we think back to just that big idea, we have to recognize our sin before favoritism ends. We have to recognize how permeated we are in that. And so that's a little intro to, for us to see where we stand uh, with God. And yet, when we look to chapter 2 and we dive into chapter 2, you might think, well, let's, well, what are we doing, James? Why are we suddenly getting into such a thing as favoritism? And I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 1. You see, the very last verse of chapter 1, James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So at the very end of chapter 1, James says, If you want to know what is true, what is right, here it is. It is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And now he's going to go on and say, That's what you should be doing, church. As people of faith, this is what you should be doing, and now here's what one should not be doing in the faith. And so he begins in chapter 2 by saying, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot show favoritism. Before we get to the idea to unpack favoritism, notice, uh, notice the high name he gives to Christ. He says, You are the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is, giving in a, he is a giving and ascribing to Christ something that up till now has been peculiar only to God himself. But now Jesus Christ is confirmed as the glorious Lord uh, within the New Testament. It's a tremendous name given to him. But you see, 
uh, discriminated against people is inconsistent with true faith in Christ, uh, but yet it happens all the time and it goes on every day. Uh, What I like is to unpack this word favoritism. Uh, It comes from the Greek word meaning to receive the face. And this word that James uses here in the New Testament, it was invented by New Testament writers as a literal rendering of a Hebrew word for partiality. You see, to receive the face means to make judgments about people based solely on external appearance. The word used in the plural here, it's used in the plural, it's acts of favoritism. So favoritism, what we find, comes in various forms, but it is not limited strictly to appearance. We're not to make decisions about people based on any external factor, whether it be dress or color of skin or general physical appearances. And if we go to the Old Testament, it repeatedly stresses in the Old Testament that God himself is impartial. And rather, what God desires of us and what he desired in the Old Testament, which is still true today, is he looks at the heart of the person rather than the outside of the person, and we are to imitate that. Now, let's, let's dive into the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, so let's go there. When does God say this in the Old Testament? When is this addressed? The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Moses, the writer, likely says this, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. But then in Leviticus 19.5, the writer there says this, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favorism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So in the Old Testament, we see this theme where God says, I, I am not a God of partiality. I don't do that. And we can even look into the scripture and see actual biblical examples of favoritism and how destructive it can be. Let's, let's walk through a few of these. So first, think about this. Through favoritism, Isaac towards Esau and Rebekah towards Jacob. What happened there? They instilled a spirit of competition, strife, and resentment between two brothers, which led to an even now ongoing feud more than 3,500 years later. But it started there, and we still are seeing the effects of that. Think about Jacob's partiality to Rachel. My goodness. This was, such, this was a great deal of hostility. It brought so many things that happened, right? You had the scheming among Jacob's wives and concubines in Genesis 30. It created rivalries between the sons because what did Jacob say? I love Rachel because she's beautiful. Leah, nah, not so much, okay? So we have this, we have this partiality there, and look at what it caused. Continue that on with Jacob. Think about Jacob's favoritism for Joseph. It made his half-brother so jealous they were ready to murder him in Genesis 37. What did they do instead, though? Ah, we're just going to sell you into slavery. But then what do they do? They go back. They tell their father he'd been torn to pieces by wild beasts. This caused this patriarch, Jacob, end of no grief. But it continues. Okay, one more example. Let's look at this. Uh, Through his partiality as a father, Eli, in the Old Testament, allowed himself to become complacent to the gross sins of his two sons, in 1 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. This led both to calamity for Eli's house and national defeat at the hands of the Philistines. So you see, God is not a God of partiality, and there are more examples within the scriptures where we see people, even large figures such as Jacob and um, some of these bigger figures, where they fall victim or they fall prey to this sin. 
But, but let's go further. What does favoritism look like in our community? What does it look like in our culture? This is not um, an extensive list, but just some things that have been pressed upon my heart this week. How about parents with kids? Children receive biased treatment based on qualities they have no ability to change. This behavior from parents causes tremendous damage to kids. Competition and strife and hatred among each other because they notice that the favoritism has gone to one child and the other child can't figure out why it's not me. I can't help it I don't play sports well. I can't help it I'm not Mr. or Miss 4.0. But yet I see this favoritism being extended to my sibling. How about employees at work? Are people being treated fairly? How are promotions being awarded? Executive meetings where the majority doesn't make decisions, but really it's just a few influential people swaying the room. How about in education? Teachers with students in their classroom. Are we, are we really being fair to all the students? Are we treating them all with respect and dignity? Are we showing favoritism to just a few, just my favorites? Social circles of people you run with. Is it an exclusive group? Are you willing to include others that are not from the area? Do we, spay, do we pay special attention to military families that come in and out of communities? Or from those who do not have family who are deeply rooted in the area? You see, there's nothing wrong with a group of friends and having a good group of friends and being close with people. That's great. But the question that I think Scripture brings up, that James brings up here is this. Are we willing to bring others into that? Are we willing to have other people come into that group and to be part of that blood, to be part of that fellowship? How about favoritism that comes from attractiveness and appearance? Is the person wearing the correct clothing brand? Students in here, you all go to school. You're in it every day. When you're in school, are you showing favoritism to kids based on what they're wearing? Does it have to be a certain brand shirt? Does it have to be a certain kind of shoe? Do they have to come from a certain neighborhood? Are you willing to associate and be friends and be equal with all people that you come into contact with? You see, we have to be very careful of this. How about favoritism that comes in athletics, extracurricular types of activities? Coaches showing favoritism to certain people, certain athletes, certain people on their team. Maybe it's because of who their parents are. Maybe it's because of how much they donated. Who knows? But what Scripture calls us to do is not to show favoritism based on those types of things. I'm not even going to this much, but how about in politics? From the small town to the federal level, favoritism that's displayed. Favoritism over gender, male and female. But you see, that's not, there's no place for these things in the kingdom of God. You see, favoritism in and outside of the church creates a lot of distrust, jealousy, intense resentment. And people who witness favoritism taking place can testify to experiencing such feelings when they see it. And so James comes out very quickly and says, look, You are not to do this. You as people in Christ don't show favoritism. And now he's going to work through some examples of what that could be within the text itself. So James goes on and he gives this example of favoritism. Okay, and so he says that people come into your meeting, right, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And so in this scenario, when he says you come into a meeting, uh, the word he's drilling down into is really the word we we get synagogue from. And so what's happening here is when you come into this meeting, he's referring to coming into a church gathering. You're coming into a church service. So he says, here's the scenario. You have two people that come into your church service. They come in to worship. And so 
What happens, he says, when people come into your house of worship? The first person comes to the meeting, they're wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. This gold ring would have been an emblem of the upper level of Roman society, the equestrian class. The gold rings were a symbol of authority, and these rings would have been used to seal decrees and official documents. So this person comes in with these fine, shining clothes, and what happens? They're given some prominent seat based on their appearance and what they look like, how they could contribute. But James contrasts this with a man wearing shabby clothes. What I like about what he says here is this. When he uses the word shabby here, I'm going to tie this into James 121, uh, because the word shabby is the same word that James uses in 121 for filth. In James 121, it says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which, you, which can save you. So the same word for filth is the same word for shabby. And so look who's coming into the service. You have this well-dressed person, and then you have this person that comes in who is homeless, this person who is dirty, and they smell, and they stink. And yet, what does James say? He says, you can't have preference over these two people. You can't show one a certain spot and one not a certain spot. So the question that I know is asked often here at Covenant is this. Uh, are we here as a body of believers, are we really going to be a rescue vessel, and do we mean that? Or are we simply that cruise ship analogy? Because as a rescue vessel, it doesn't matter who comes through those doors. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they're dressed. It doesn't matter. Because what's, 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 what we have in common is this. We're all awful sinners. Down to the core of our being, we're fallen. We're radically corrupted. And the only way we ever overcome that is God's grace in our life and his salvation in the cross. And so whoever comes through that door is in the same state we used to be, which is in need of grace, which is in need of salvation, and it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter. And that's the challenge that James is giving us. So Christians who discriminate in this manner that he's talking about are judges with evil thoughts. When we do this, we become like the judges who decide the outcome of a court case, not on its own merits, but by considering what that judge could gain personally from the outcome. And so this isn't something we can do, and this echoes back to what we already read in Leviticus 19.15, that we shouldn't have this type of partiality. And if we as Christians do this, if we want to be part of this, then what we are implicitly claiming is God's own right to stand in judgment over other people. But that is not what we have been called to. We have been called to so much more. And so, so James continues. He gives this kind of um, illustration. Then he says, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? And so he goes on, and favoritism towards the rich is wrong because it contradicts God's own attitude as revealed in his gracious election to salvation. And James is bringing to light that many poor people have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and their conversions are powerful evidence of God's deep regard for people. In stark reversal of status, those who are poor to some extent have now become amazingly wealthy and rich in faith because they now inherit the kingdom that has been promised to them. And if you notice, James says here, the kingdom he promised to those who love him. The he, uh, as all commentators tend to agree on here, that he is God. It is the kingdom that God has promised to those who love him. This is the true reversal 
See, the kingdom of God is central to the preaching of Jesus. He presented himself as one through whom God's reign was even being realized. The fullness of its power and the riches of its blessings are still in a future sense to be realized. You see, it is when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him that faithful servants receive their inheritance. The kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world for those who have placed their faith in Christ. You see, Christians, however poor material possessions we could be, possess spiritual wealth presently, and we anticipate even greater blessing in the future. You see, James' general point from this verse is that God's choice of poor people to inherit his kingdom is evidence of his regard for them and shows how wrong we as Christians, as believers, are to discriminate against these very poor people. And we can see from the New Testament that God delights to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacies. And so James continues here in this text. He says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So what is he getting at here? What is he, what, what's he really talking about? Uh, you, you see, James is arguing that Christians should not give undue difference to wealthy people at the expense of the poor. He starts by asking them, are they not the ones who are exploiting you? Now, in this situation, let's unpack that. For this situation described by James corresponds closely to the, what do we know about the conditions in first century Middle East. You see, there was a small group of wealthy landowners and merchants who accumulated more and more power, while large numbers of people were forced from their land and grew even poorer. Most of James' readers in this context likely belong to this poor class of agricultural laborers. The scenario is one that would be very familiar to the readers um, here and to the Old Testament. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament frequently denounced those who oppressed the poor, such as Amos 4.1, including orphans and widows in Ezekiel 22.7. And so James here is saying, um, look at what these people are doing. Uh, and he goes on, he says, look, these rich people who are using their wealth and influence with the courts to secure favorable verdicts against the poor. So he says, look at what they're doing. They're dragging you into court, but they're using their position, they're using their wealth to gain favorable verdicts, which is not accurate. It's not true. It's not what should be happening because they're taking advantage of you. But these very people, the ones who we're giving partiality to, James says, they're also the ones who are blaspheming, blaspheming the name of the Lord. To blaspheme means a violation, usually in speech, of God's own person. It can also be extended to any slander that involves God, even indirectly. Now, James here doesn't give us any specific examples of what they were saying or exactly what was taking place, but just that in some way, these very people that were being given undue status were also mocking the name of Christ. James is talking about our attitude here even towards those who are outside the community of faith. And how is that attitude to be governed and controlled? By looking at the principle of God's redeeming plan, we can do that. One of the glories of that redeeming plan is that in God's grace, he chose us in spite of ourselves and in spite of our sins. He didn't look at us and say, you know what? You have a lot to offer me. You're a really valuable person. In fact, you're so valuable, I'm going to save you. That, that's not what happened. You see, he looked at us, and in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin and wickedness, he draws us into his family. The beautiful thing about God and in the New Testament is what are we compared to all the time as people? Sheep. Why sheep? 
because they're stupid. They're the dumbest, most worthless animals. They will walk off a cliff. They will go here and there. They need constant instruction and leadership because if not, they can't make it. They'll fall over and never get up. They'll freeze out of fear and die. That's us. We're not given the analogy of some kind of cool lion, some type of, you know, big, strong animal that people will be like, oh, yeah, I want to be the lion. No, we're called sheep for a reason. We need to rely on God. He looked at us and goes, there's nothing here but your mind, and I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to give you value because I'm going to call you into mercy. And so, again, what, what is James getting at here? Go back to that big idea. Okay, the idea of favoritism only ends when what? When we look at our sin and we understand ourselves and we're able to get the gospel. Uh, so so let's, let's move on here uh, into the last few verses. So James says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself in verse 8, he says you're doing right. He says, if you really want to keep the law, then, then here's what you should be doing. Now, uh, there's a neat little phrase here. Do you notice the phrase? He says, if you really keep the royal law, did that stand out to you at all as you read that? So one question that we can ask ourselves is, well, what, what exactly is the royal law? What, what is James getting at? Uh, this is the law pertaining to the kingdom of God. It is the sum total of demands that God, through Jesus, gives to us as believers. The whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church and the teaching of Christ. James is telling us that completing the sum total of God's will for his people, the moral law, takes place in accordance with conformity to the central demand of the law, to love one's neighbor. We should not be surprised here that James speaks of this command. It's at the center of the New Testament. For example, look at, let's look at Matthew 22 together in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This, Christ said, is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, in the Old Testament, to be your neighbor meant you were a fellow Israelite. But what Christ does in his teaching in the New Testament is he expands that application to include everyone with whom a person might come into contact with such as in Luke 10 and Matthew 5, when Christ is teaching. And this teaching of Christ had a huge impact on the church. Let's look at uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is Paul again in Romans. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to what, Paul? To love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, did you see that list of commands that Paul went through about you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder or steal? Did you notice those? You see, it's interesting what he's getting at. If you love your neighbor... If we do as James teaches, if we do as Christ commands, if we love our neighbor as ourself, then those things Paul mentioned don't happen. You can't commit murder if you're loving your neighbor. You can't covet if you're loving your neighbor. You can't do those things. You're not going to steal. You're not going to commit adultery. Those things don't happen if your attitude is as of Christ, which says love your neighbor as yourself. 
And how do we love ourselves? We don't, we don't not feed ourselves. We don't do those types of things. We love and care for ourselves. And in that same capacity, we should love and care others. But now if we think about more into this big, uh, big idea at the beginning, you love one another as yourself, and that ultimately comes from how you know God first loved you. And so God called you into his kingdom. He loved you for no other reason than he did. We just saw how it wasn't because of how good we were or how much we could do or how talented we were. He just said, you are my child, and I'm bringing you in. You are mine. God loved us fully without qualification. And when we understand that, we can apply it to others in our life, and we can love others in the same way. Why do we love other people? Because God loved us first. Why do we love anybody? Because God first loved me. God didn't give me half love. He didn't give me love once I understood the book of Romans correctly. He didn't extend love to me after I understood the doctrine of justification. No, none of that. God said, Nicholas, I love you because of who you are, because you were created in the image of God. You were created in the Imago Dei, as theology would tell us. We were all created in God's image uniquely. And if you and I are created in his image, then we should care for one another in that same way, in God's image. We can't, we can't choose between who looks right and who doesn't look right and who's dressed the same and who may be this way. Because guess what? When we were all created, it was in the same way, after God's image. And that is something we should always keep on the forefront of our mind. Paul also says in Galatians, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so James is very careful here to tell us, if you want to do what is right, if you want to do these things correctly, Love your neighbor. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, he has a few more things to share with us before he wraps up this section. In verses 9 through 11, he says, But if you show favoritism, you sin, okay, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So this is kind of a weird section, and, and as I look at it this week and I read it, I, it didn't make exact sense to me, because did you see verse 10? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it? Let that, let, think about that for a second. Think about what James is saying. He's saying you consider the whole law, you consider everything God has given us. If you break just one piece of that, all of it's broken. And if you think about that, if you let that kind of let that kind of thing like kind of sink in, that's that's not exactly easy to resonate. But but I think as there's a commentator who did a great job, I think describing this, and I want to read what he said. This commentator said this in reference to the breaking of the law and doing one thing and breaking the whole piece. He says this, When we see the crescent moon, we say there's a moon, because the whole is there even though we can only see a part. In the same way, the whole, lot of God, the whole law of God is represented in every individual precept. And then that same writer goes on to use another analogy, and he says this, he says, If you have a mirror, and you take a rock, and you throw a rock at the mirror, and you hit one spot of the mirror, what happens to the mirror? shatters the whole thing it's all gone right if it's ever happened to your windshield you get sad about it because you got to pay 280 bucks out of pocket to get it fixed or if there's a mirror in your house and it happens you see that happen but it's the same way if we sin think about that mirror it may only be one spot on the mirror but what happens shatters everywhere and so what James is showing us is that when we do one thing wrong if there's just one piece 
that we don't do correctly, we're guilty of breaking the entire law of God. Every piece of it. And that's, that is something that I have chewed on all week. But again, let's go back to the big idea. We have to understand our sin in the gospel because in doing that, we really see how there is an end to favoritism. For in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, as Galatians 3.27 tells us. So how do we finish up here, James? What are you telling us? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. Who's mercy, James? Mercy triumphs over judgment, but whose mercy is that? A natural reading here, you often think, well, it's got to be God's mercy. It's got to be the mercy of God. Uh, But yet if we unpack this passage, in this passage, Paul's talking about who? He's talking about you and I. I'm sorry, not Paul, James, I misspoke. James is talking about you and I. He's talking about how we relate to one another. He's talking about how we treat one another in the body of Christ and outside of it. So the mercy he's talking about here is the mercy that you and I extend to people. Yes, it is true. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, that is true. But in this passage, in this sense, he is talking about us and the mercy that we have on other people and how mercy triumphs over judgment. But here's the thing. We can't, we got to understand the gospel for this to sink in. We got to know the gospel. And this is going to sound strange, I'm telling you. But there's no better way to know the gospel than go to the book of Genesis. And I know that sounds weird, but just hang with me for a minute. I'm telling you, we, we cannot know the gospel if it's not for the book of Genesis. Um, and this is going to sound weird, but I, I just want to show this to you here um, towards the end. I'm going to go to Genesis 15. Um, and this is, this is definitely my most favorite, one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. If you hadn't a chance to read it, I would encourage you to go home, read it on your own, study it, dive into it. It deserves its own sermon or several sermons. Um, But I want to kind of give you just kind of like an outline of Genesis 15 and show how the gospel overcomes favoritism uh, because of the power of the gospel. So this is is a uh, chapter in Genesis, and God here forms a covenant with Abraham. And if you look at your Bible cheater headline, if you turn there, that's probably the first thing you saw. So you're thinking, oh, there's some kind of covenant going on here. God has made a covenant with Abraham. But I want to give the context. So the context is this. Um, Abraham still has no kids. He still has no children. He has no heirs still at this point in his life. And he says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But then what happens in this passage? As it goes on, The word of the Lord comes to Abraham, and God tells him, this man will not be your heir, but a son will come from your own body. And so God takes him outside. He says, look, Abraham, look at the heavens. Count the stars, if you could count them. He said, so shall your offspring be. But what does Abraham say? He says, says, you know what, O sovereign Lord? How can I know I could take possession of land or have this type of people? How can I know about any of these things? How do I know that your promises are going to come true? Tell me. And this is beautiful. Look at what God's response is. <laughs> Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. What? 
Have you thought about that? Abraham's asking God, how can I know that your promises are true? How can I know that what you've told me is going to happen? How can I know that there will be land? How can I know that there will be descendants? How can I know that kings are going to come for me? How can I be sure of your promises? And God's response is, bring me some animals. Now for Abraham, he knows exactly what's going on here. Okay, Abraham, about 2100 BC or so, he would have known what this meant. He would have known, time to make a covenant. We're making a promise today. Now, this is way better than our promises, way better, okay? Because in these times, if you're going to make a promise, if you're going to make a covenant between two parties, you brought the animals. Why? You took the animals, and if you read the passage, here's what Abraham does. It's bloody. It's a bloodbath. He slices those things in half and lays them open on the ground, cuts them in half, splits them. Birds, goats, all the animals cut in half. Why? Because the form of the covenant back then, the sign of the promise was this. There's the animals. I'm going to walk through the animals. I'm going to walk through the dead animals split in half. And here's why. Because if I don't do my part, if I don't uphold my part of the promise, then may the same thing be done to me that was done to these animals. If I don't do my promise, split me in half. Kill me. That makes your promises a whole lot more serious than what we do today when we go and get a little notary and some little seal put on it. Okay, imagine if in Bossier Parish we started doing some old school covenant agreements. We'd be on the news, It'd be a little messy. But look at, how, look at the serious nature of this. But, but that's not just what happened. You see, this passage is the gospel is so incredible here because look at what happens. This happens and Abraham's thinking, I'm going to walk through the animals. But when you read this passage, Abraham doesn't walk through the animals. It says, in fact, that Abraham fell into a deep sleep. The tardema of God, the dread of God came over Abraham in this passage just like it came over Adam. And what happens? A smoking pot comes down. A theophany occurs. God's God's presence comes to Abraham in the form of a smoking pot and God goes through the pieces. It is God that goes through the animals. And what did that do for Abraham? Think about Abraham now. And what does that do for Abraham? Abraham goes, oh my goodness. There's a promise that's been made. A covenant has just been made. But it's not based on me. It's not based on my works. It's not based on what I can do. God just guaranteed the promise. God just said, Abraham, if this doesn't happen, let the consequences fall on me. Let me be cut to shreds. Let me be the one that's split in half. And now you've got to think to yourself, does that ever happen? Yes. You see, God made the promise with Abraham and upheld his promise all the way through Christ because it was on the cross that his son was split in two. It was on the cross that Christ was broken and bled. And why? For you and I. For the sin that we could never forgive on our own. For the wrongs that we were going to commit that needed to be forgiven so that we could be in right accordance with God. You see, Genesis 15 is the gospel. Because if we get the gospel, if we get the depths of our own sin, then there is no partiality in the kingdom of God. Because we understand that God walked through those dead animals for you as much as me, as whoever comes through that door. As much as any person at the hub, as much as any person anywhere, God did it for us all. That ends partiality. That ends favoritism. It's the gospel. And understanding our sin. I love Genesis 15. It's this beautiful 
picture of what God did so long ago in giving us the promise of his son. But think about that today as we head into communion. We head into communion to celebrate what? And remember what God did on the cross for us. We go into communion to remember his broken body for us, his bloodshed, the gospel itself as a core. And I would challenge us today that before we take communion, before we go to the table, that we ask ourselves, are we ourselves showing some type of favoritism in our own life that needs to be addressed, that needs to be done away with? Has God prompted us in some way to figure out how we can do things and love our neighbor as we should, maybe instead of how we're doing it? I encourage you to spend time with God before we come to the table. Now, this table is for all who believe in the kingdom of God. This table is for anybody who's placed their faith in Christ, regardless of the nomination. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've recognized that he walked between the pieces for you, if you recognize that he paid the total cost for you on the cross, then let's celebrate the Lord's Supper and spend some time in prayer um, before that. But let's, let's close in prayer here this morning. Father, thank you for this chance and this opportunity uh, to look at your word. And Father, I, I am grateful for the book of James. I'm grateful for the challenges that lie within it and that we as people uh, should treat everyone evenly in the kingdom of God and outside of it. Um, that there is no Jew nor Gentile, but we are all one in Christ, and we are all starting at the same place, which is sinful and in need of Savior. And I'm grateful that we have a Savior who was broken for us, who walked through the pieces, who upheld the covenant. Father, let us come to your table today with that in mind. Amen. Thank you.